Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Okay, oh geez, it's very short. Hi everybody, thank you for coming out. Um, I'm really bad at making speeches and I was thinking about what I was gonna say and I was like, oh no, I, I can't thank everybody because then I'll start crying. So I thought that I would instead read a story by Richard Brodigan, <laughs> just to begin with. It doesn't really have anything to do with thanks or anything, it's just, it's just a story by Richard Brodigan. This is in his collection, Revenge of the Lawn. It's called Pacific Radio Fire. Oh, I'm getting old, so I have to. <laughs> the largest ocean in the world starts or ends at Monterey, California. It depends on what language you are speaking. My friend's wife had just left him. She walked right out the door and didn't even say goodbye. We went and got two-fifths of port and headed for the Pacific. It's an old song that's been played on all the jukeboxes in America. The song has been around so long that it's been recorded on the very dust of America, and it has settled on everything and changed chairs and cars and toys and lamps and windows into billions of phonographs to play that song back into the ear of our broken heart. We sat down on a small corner-like beach, surrounded by big granite rocks and the hugeness of the Pacific Ocean with all its vocabularies. We were listening to rock and roll on his transistor radio and somberly drinking port. We were both in despair. I didn't know what he was going to do with his life either. I took another sip of port. The Beach Boys were singing a song about California girls on the radio. They liked them. His eyes were wet, wounded rugs. Like some kind of strange vacuum cleaner, I tried to console him. I recited the same old litanies that you say to people when you try to help their broken hearts, but words can't help at all. It's just the sound of another human voice that makes the only difference. There's nothing you're ever going to say that's going to make anybody happy when they're feeling shitty about losing somebody that they love. Finally, he set fire to the radio. He piled some paper around it. He struck a match to the paper. We sat there watching it. I'd never seen anybody set fire to a radio before. As the radio gently burned away, the flames began to affect the songs that we were listening to. A record that was number one on the top 40 suddenly dropped to number 13 inside of itself. A song that was number nine became number 27 in the middle of a chorus about loving somebody. They tumbled in popularity like broken birds. Then it was too late for all of them. Just, just a little cheerful story to start us out. So I, I was supposed to figure out what I was going to read today, and I totally failed. So I'm just opening this up to the very first story. I'm sorry. I don't know. If anyone has any requests, you can just call them out, because I have no plan. The dodo. Once there was a dodo, and he died with the rest. But then he suddenly got back up again. And he started running around saying, hey, look at me, everybody, I'm a dodo, and I'm alive. Of course, no one believed him, because the dodos were all dead. 
The dodos are all dead, they said. You, bird, must be a chicken. So act like a chicken, they said. The dodo was confused. He didn't know what to do. For a while, he kept on insisting. But I'm a dodo, he said. I'm a dodo, I am. But the people just laughed and then ignored him. So finally, the dodo gave it up. Maybe I'll just pretend to be a chicken, he said. Just for a while, on a temporary basis, just to see how it goes. So the dodo did some research into the whole chicken phenomenon, and then he started to practice. He got pretty good at going bok, 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 and bobbing his head back and forth. It wasn't a very interesting existence, being a chicken, but it was better than being laughed at and scorned. And in time, the dodo was very good at it. He even won a few awards. But then one day, the dodo walked by a museum, and he saw a big banner out front. The banner said, a celebration of dodos. So the dodo walked in and strolled around. The dodo learned all about the history of dodos, where they were from and what they ate and all that. It was nothing that the dodo hadn't always known before, but it seemed somehow he'd forgotten it. Near the end of the exhibit, the dodo came to a diorama. There were replicas of his ancestors behind glass. And below it explained that the dodos were all dead, and the dodo became very sad. But I'm a dodo, the dodo said, and I'm here. I'm alive. Why don't these people understand that? Then the dodo caught sight of his own reflection in the glass, and what he saw was a chicken staring back. Oh my God, said the dodo, looking down at himself. He saw his chicken wings, his chicken feet. How did this happen, the dodo said. I'm a dodo. This isn't true. This isn't me. So the dodo went home and did some soul searching, and he decided that things had to change. So he stopped bobbing his head around and saying, bok, 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 bok. He walked around like he was a dodo again. He didn't care that he looked like a chicken. He knew what he was inside. And what's more, he wasn't shy about talking about it. I'm a dodo, he screamed at everyone. You understand? Of course, people laughed, just like they had before. But this time, the dodo didn't care. I'm a dodo, I'm a dodo, I'm a dodo, he screamed. And he pecked at people's knees when they ignored him. In no time at all, the news got around. There's a crazy chicken out there attacking people, people said. So they got up a committee. Well, a posse, really. We'll go teach that chicken a lesson, they said. The dodo saw them coming from a mile away, but he didn't run, he didn't hide. I'm a dodo, he yelled. I am not a chicken. Oh yeah, the posse said, and drew their knives. The dodo looked at them, and then finally he smiled. All right, he said, and went forth to fight. And the posse came at him, but the dodo didn't take flight, and his true feathers shone brightly in the light. All right, I, I, I gotta figure out what I'm reading next. And the, um, hey, there's whiskey up here. If anybody wants some, please help yourself. Silence. Does anyone, does anyone have anything to say while I try to find this? Thank you all for coming. What's on page 61? I didn't memorize the numbers. Oh, the squid story. Maybe we'll do that last. That's a good one. I love Elmore Leonard.
Elmore Leonard, that's a good one too. <laughs> hey, yes, you should drink it. Okay, I will. It's good. Thank you for coming. That's Mark Haskell Smith. He wrote my favorite blurb on this book. Yes, thank you. He's a yes. He's very good at it. Read his blurb. Interconnected now. Ben Laurie's stories are like perfect cones cracked from inside the world's smartest fortune cookie. Funny, crunchy, and irresistible. Mark Haskell Smith, author of Naked at Lunch. Did I say cones, right? Cones. It's with a K. Okay. Um, this is a story called The Porpoise. A man gets a job working for the circus. The whole thing happens very fast. He's sitting in his house, he's unhappy with his life. Then he picks up the paper and sees an ad. The circus is coming, the ad says in big letters. Don't you want to work for the circus? Hmm, says the man. He puts down the paper. Then he walks out the door and starts the car. The man drives downtown to where they're setting the tent up. He gets out of the car and looks around. Hey, he says to a guy sitting behind the table, is this where you get the circus jobs? Yeah, says the guy. He looks like the ringmaster. But the thing is, we only have one left. Oh, says the man. And which one is that? Swimming with the porpoises, the guy says. Porpoises, says the man. I didn't even know you had those. I thought the circus was just tigers and stuff. Nope, says the guy. We got porpoises too. So what do you say? You want the job? Okay, says the man. Great, says the guy. Sign this form and initial it here. The man takes the pen and makes the required marks. Welcome, welcome aboard, says the guy. You start tomorrow. Tomorrow, says the man. That doesn't leave me much time. What do you need time for, the guy says. Well, says the man. He thinks for a minute. Be here 7 a.m. sharp, says the guy. The man drives on home. He's feeling a little grumpy. What's all the rush, he says. I mean, what if I had something important to do tomorrow? He drinks a beer, watches TV, goes to bed. Almost immediately, the man has a dream. In his dream, he's in the water with a porpoise. With a shock, the man sits bolt upright in bed. But I don't know how to swim, he says. Somehow this fact had eluded him before. But I'm sure the circus will train me, he says. But maybe they won't, he says a minute later. What if they just assumed? The man throws the sheet back. I'm going to drown, he says. I mean, it's right there in the job title. I have to swim. He gets up and paces back and forth about the room. I need swimming lessons, he says. The man finds the phone book and picks up the phone. He calls the local YMCA. He gets a recording all about swimming lessons. They start the week after next. But I could be dead by then, the man says in a panic. I have to learn how to swim tonight. Think, think, he says, and thinks hard. Suddenly, he thinks of Sally Reinhardt. The man hasn't thought of Sally Reinhardt in years. She was the man's high school girlfriend. He broke up with her a few days after graduation. Geez, that was dumb of me, he thinks. Hmm, says the man. He looks at the phone. Sally Reinhardt was the state swimming champion. She had come this close to making it to the Olympics. It had been like dating a fish woman. <laughs> the man picks the phone up and dials Sally's number. 20 years and he still knows it by heart. Hello, says a voice. Sally, says the man. Luke, Sally says. Luke Devereaux. 
The man gets in his car and drives to Sally's house. When he gets there, it's after 1 a.m. But Sally's got the backyard pool all heated and lit up. Thanks so much for doing this, he says. No problem, Sally says. Come on down into the water. It's good to see you again, she adds. You too, says the man, feeling awkward in his trunks. All right, Sally says. You start like this. The man stays in the pool with Sally for hours. You're a very fast learner, she says. The man does the breaststroke up and down the pool. Then he stops and kisses Sally. She kisses back. Oh, Luke, Sally says. I'm so glad you called. I'm so glad you answered, he says. They hold each other close. Then they climb out of the pool and towel off and run into bed. At about 7 a.m., the man suddenly laughs. I'm supposed to be at the circus, he says. Oh, Sally says, are you still going to go? What? The man says, hell no. <laughs> but just at that moment, there's a knock on the door, more like a pounding, a banging. The two of them leap up and jump out of the bed. Who could that be, they say. Circus, blares a voice through the megaphone from outside. Come on out, we know you're in there, Luke Devereaux. The man leans over and peers out through the blinds. I don't want to go, he says. I changed my mind. But the guy with the bullhorn holds up a piece of paper. You signed a contract, he says. You can't get out of it. It's legal, ironclad, and the police are here to enforce it, he adds. Sure enough, behind the guy and the clowns, there are policemen. They're all holding billy clubs in their hands. Shit, says the man. He looks at Sally in fear. Hurry, come with me, she says. Sally leads the man out through the kitchen door, down the spiral stairs into the secret garage. Get in, Sally says, motioning to the dune buggy. The garage door opens and the giant engine roars. They squeal off over the hills, behind the sirens whine. The clowns are shaking their fists from their tiny car. You can't get away, yells the guy with the megaphone. You can't avoid the circus and the law. The man is still terrified, but Sally's jaw is set. The hell with those jokers, she says. She spins the wheel hard. The buggy leaps forward and crashes through the doors of a shopping mall. They speed past the shops, leap the central fountain, and crash out through the back wall of a Spencer's Gifts. And then they speed away across the parking lot, but the cops and the circus are right behind. They come up over a rise and Sally slams on the brakes. They jump out, they're at the edge of a cliff. The man looks at Sally. She reaches for his hand. Come on, count of three, she says. The two leap from the cliff as their pursuers arrive. They splash down in the water and bob back up. The clowns and the cops stand glaring from the cliff. You can't get away, the ringmaster yells. But get away they can, and get away they do. They swim away from the shore in perfect form. The figures on the cliff top grow smaller and smaller until they can't even see them anymore. I'm sorry I broke up with her after high school, the man says. I don't know what I could possibly have been thinking. It's all right, Sally says. I had a lot to learn. For some reason, I was really wrapped up in swimming. And the two of them laugh and they swim out together, while behind them the land fades away. And finally they come to Sally's secret boat. It's named the Porpoise, and on the Porpoise they sail away. <laughs> All right, I have to read this story because this story was like.
my pride and joy and also the bane of my existence for like 10 years trying to figure out this story. Um, and I remember the day that I figured out uh, I was driving my friend Cecil home from something, I don't know, and I was like, I was going crazy about this story. And I just sat in the car outside Cecil's house and just told her the story like over and over with all the different versions. And we talked about this story for like two hours. And anyway, and then I figured it out and I was like, get out, get out, I gotta... <laughs> gotta go home and write this. So uh, this is called, oh, thank you, Cecil. Um, so this is called Death and the Lady. A lady goes to church one Sunday morning and notices Death sitting beside her in the pew. Oh, Death, she says, very much surprised. Well, hello, I didn't see you. Hello to you too, miss, Death says with a smile. And what are we praying for today? Oh, says the lady, long life and happiness. Ah, says death, sounds nice. When the service is over, the lady gets up to leave. I'll see you later, death, she says. Indeed, says death, I certainly hope so. And he smiles and watches her walk away. The next week, the lady returns to church, and death is sitting there again. Afternoon, miss, he says with a smile. If you don't mind, she says, I'm actually a ma'am. Oh, says Death. He looks a bit surprised. I know, isn't it strange, the lady says. She raises her hand and wiggles her wedding ring. Well, says Death, lucky man. Are you all right, the lady says after a moment. You're looking a little pale, you know. Working hard, says Death. Just working hard is all. Well, let's get some lunch, the lady says. But, says Death, motioning to the service. Oh, don't worry about that, the lady says. She rises from the pew and motions for Death to follow. They have those all the time, she says. The lady takes Death to a nearby cafe. They sit at a table and eat bread and sausage. Feel better, says the lady. Oh, yes, says Death. In fact, I do very much. For a moment, the two of them just sit there and smile. Do you have any children, the lady says. Oh no, says Death, marriage is not for me. My career has to come first, you know. I understand, the lady says, with her best understanding nod. I have a cousin like that. Wait, I think I have a picture in here. She rummages around in her purse. That's my husband, she says, passing Death a photo. And that's my sister and my cousin. And that's my daughter, and those are the twins. Handsome boys, says Death, you must be proud. Just then a bell tolls in the distance. Goodness, says the lady, I have to go. We're having a dinner party tonight, and I still have so much to do. Quite all right, says Death. I hope it goes well. And don't worry, I'll get the bill. Are you sure, says the lady? I had a wonderful time. Absolutely, says Death. I did too. The next week, the lady arrives at church to find Death sitting out front in a convertible. I thought we might go for a drive, he says. After all, the weather's beautiful. What a marvelous idea, the lady says, climbing in. Is this yours, she says, the car? Oh no, says Death. I took a vow of poverty. My uncle let me borrow it for the day. Ah, says the lady, that's very nice of him. Well, on with it, Jeeves, let's go. And Death laughs and puts the car into gear, and onward the two of them roll. Death drives the lady up into the hills that stand overlooking the city. They park by a cliff 
and spread out a blanket and open up death's picnic basket. They unpack a feast and lay it all out, and then they drink a toast. To you, says death. No you, says the lady. Well then, says death, to us both. The two lie on the blanket and laugh and talk. Death tells the lady about his job. It's okay, he says, but sometimes I get lonely. I know how you feel, lady says. You do, says death. I always thought you were happy. Dinner parties and photographs and all. Well, says the lady, things are different now. What with everyone gone? Gone, says death. But where did they go? Well, my husband, you know, the lady says. And my daughter's married and in Sweden now. And the twins have moved to Maine. Maine, Death says, but last week there were four. Oh, that wasn't last week, the lady says. Maybe time moved differently for you, but I haven't seen you in ages. But, says Death, gazing at her in awe, but you look exactly the same. But even as he says that, he sees the old woman like a ghost there moving beneath the skin. Well, says Death, he blinks and looks away. You look the same to me, he says. It's nice of you this, to say, the lady says with a smile, and I still feel the same on most days. And what have you been up to, she suddenly says brightly, as if to change the subject. Me, says death, oh well, not too much, running up and down upon the earth. Well, tell me all about it, the lady says. I've never been anywhere in my life. Nowhere, says death. Just here, the lady says, is the rest of the world as nice. Nice, death says. I never thought of it that way. I like it best in Asia, I guess. Did you see the Great Wall of China, the lady says. Oh, yes, says death, of course. So he tells her about his time there, about the houses and the domes, about the sunsets and the spires. And he tells her about Egypt and Iceland and Norway and Antarctica and everywhere else. It all sounds so nice, the lady says with a sigh. I always meant to see the world, but there wasn't time. Well, says Death, it's never too late. We can go, and if you want, you can drive. He raises a hand and motions to the car. Oh, I couldn't, the lady says. And besides, don't you have a job to be at? I could take some time off, Death says. The lady looks at Death, and Death looks back. Then, with a smile, she starts to nod. All right, she says, you got yourself a deal. Now please help an old lady up. So Death stands up and takes the lady's arm, and he walks her slowly to the car. He helps her in and then climbs in himself. She turns the key and the engine roars. Okay now, says Death, are you sure you want to do this? I do, says the lady, but first a kiss. So Death leans in and they close their eyes and they kiss. Then she floors it off the cliff. Right. I don't know. How, how are we on time here? Does, does anybody know? Yeah. Okay, so I'll read another story. Is that okay? I'm good. Okay. Um... Oh, somebody wanted this quit story. Where the hell is it? Page 61, yeah. How's everybody doing? Okay. Good. Everybody.
Nobody's looking at me. Okay, this, uh, the squid who fell in love with the sun. Once there was a squid who fell in love with the sun. He'd been a strange squid ever since he was born. One of his eyes pointed off in an odd direction, and one of his tentacles was a little deformed. So as a result, all the other squids made fun of him. They called him gimpy and stupid and lame. And when he'd come around, they'd shoot jets of ink at him and laugh at him as they swam away. So after a while, this squid gave up and started hanging out by himself. He'd swim around alone near the surface of the water, gazing upward, and that's when he saw the sun. The sun looked to him like the greatest thing in the world. It's just so beautiful, he'd think. And he'd stretch out his arms and try to grab hold of it, but the sun was always out of reach. What are you doing, the other squids would say when they saw him grasping for it like that. Nothing, he'd say, just trying to touch the sun. God, you're such an idiot, the squid would say. Why do you say that, the squid would ask. Because, the others would say, the sun is too high. You'll never be able to reach it. I will someday, the squid would say. And the other squids laughed, but the squid kept on trying. He didn't give up. He reached and stretched and reached. And then one day, he saw a fish jump out of the water. I should try jumping, he said. So the squid started trying to jump to reach the sun. At first, he couldn't jump very high. He'd lurch out of the water and then fall right back in. But he kept trying more and more every day. And in time, the squid could jump pretty high. He could make it eight or nine feet out of the water. He'd make a big dash in order to build up some steam and then leap up with all his tentacles waving. But no matter how high and how far the squid jumped, he never could quite reach the sun. You really are a stupid squid, the squid would say. You really get dumber all the time. The squid didn't understand how what he was doing was dumb, but it was true that he didn't seem to be getting much closer. Then one day in mid-jump, he saw a bird flying by. Wings, I need wings, the squid said. So the squid set out to build himself a pair of wings. He did some research into different kinds of materials. He found some ancient books in a sunken ship he discovered, and he read the ones about metallurgy and aeroscience. And in time, the squid built himself some wings. They were made of a super lightweight material that also had a very high tensile strength. He'd had to build a small smelting plant to make them. <laughs> Looks like these wings are ready to go, the squid said, and he leapt up out of the water. And he flapped and flapped, and he rose and rose. He rose up above the clouds and flapped on. It's working, the squid said. He looked up toward the sun. I'm coming, I'm coming, he said. But then something happened. His wings stopped working. Up that high, the air was too thin. Oh, the squid said, and he started to fall. He fell all the way back down to the sea. Luckily, he wasn't hurt. He'd had the foresight to bring a parachute. He even had a backup for emergencies. But he splashed down in the water, and as he did, his wings shattered. And of course, the other squids laughed again. When is this squid ever going to learn, they said. But the squid no longer took notice of them. You see, the squid had had an idea, all the way up there at the top of his climb, just as he was perched at the outer limit of the atmosphere. 
what I need is an interplanetary spaceship, he said. <laughs> because at that very moment, the squid had finally grasped something. He finally understood the layout of the solar system. Before he'd been bound by his terrestrial beginnings, now he understood the vast distances involved. Of course, building an interplanetary spaceship was complicated, much more complicated than a simple set of wings. But the squid was not discouraged. If anything, he was excited. It's good to have a purpose, he said. So the squid set out designing himself a spaceship. The body was easy. It was the propulsion system that was hard. He had to cover about a hundred million miles. I'm going to need a lot of speed, he said. At first, the squid designed an atomic reactor, but it turned out that wouldn't provide power enough. He'd gone pretty heavily into physics by this point. I need to harness dark matter and energy, he said. And so the squid did. He designed and built the world's first dark matter and energy reactor. It took a lot of time and about a thousand scientific breakthroughs. All right, he said, that should be fast enough. And finally, one day, the squid's interplanetary spaceship was built and ready to take off. The squid put on his helmet and climbed inside. Well, here goes nothing, he said. He pushed a single button and took off in a burst of light and plowed straight up out of the atmosphere. He tore free of Earth's orbit and whizzed past the moon, burned past Venus, and sped on toward Mercury. There in his command chair, the squid stared at the sun as it grew larger before him on the screen. I'm coming, I'm coming, my beautiful sun, he said. I'll finally hold you after all this time. But as he got closer, something strange started to happen. Something the squid hadn't foreseen. The ship started getting hotter. And then hotter and hotter still. Why is it so hot, the squid said. You see, the squid really knew nothing about the sun. He didn't even know what it was. It had always just been a symbol to him, an abstraction that filled a hole in his life. He never even figured out that it was a great ball of fire. That is, until this very moment. But now the truth finally dawned on him. That thing's gonna kill me, he said. He slammed on the brakes, but the ship just kept on going. He threw the engines into reverse, and they whined. But still he kept going, getting closer and closer. I'm stuck in the sun's gravity, he said. He did some calculations and realized he was lost. He'd gone too far. He was over the edge. Even with his engines all strained to the limit, he had only a few hours to live. And as he sat there in his chair, just waiting to die, something even worse started to happen. The squid started ruminating, thinking about his life. Oh my God, he said, I really have been an idiot. Suddenly it was all just painfully clear. Everything he'd done, all his work, had been for nothing. I'm a moron, he said. I wasted my whole life. That's not true, you built me, the ship said. And the squid thought about it, and he realized the ship was right. But you will be destroyed too, he said. Yes, said the ship, but I have a transmitter. If we work fast, at least the knowledge can be saved. So the squid started working like he'd never worked before, feverishly as he fell into the sun.
He wrote out all his knowledge, his equations and theorems, clarified the workings of everything he'd done. And in the moments left over, this quid went even further. He pushed out into other realms of thought. He explored biology and psychology and ethics and medicine and architecture and art. He made great leaps. He overcame boundaries. He shoved back the limits of ignorance. It was like his whole mind came alive for that moment and did the work that millions had never done. And in the very last second before his ship was destroyed and he himself was annihilated completely, this quite sat back. That's all I got, he said, and the ship beamed it all into space. And the knowledge of this quid sailed out through the dark, and it sped its way back toward Earth. But of course, when it got there, the other squids didn't get it, because they were too dumb to build radios. <laughs> and the story would end there with a squid's sad and lonely death. But luckily, those signals kept going. They moved out past Earth, past Mars and the asteroid belt, past Jupiter and all the other planets. And then they kept going out beyond the solar system, out into and through the darkness of space. They moved through the void, through other galaxies and clusters. They kept going for billions of years. And finally, one day, untold millenniums later, they were picked up by an alien civilization. Just a tiny backwards race on some tiny backwards planet, all alone at the darkest end of space. And that alien civilization decoded those transmissions, and they examined them and took them to heart. And they started to think, and they started to build, and they changed their whole way of life. They built shining cities of towering beauty. They built hospitals and schools and parks. They obliterated disease and stopped fighting wars. And then they turned their eyes towards space. And they took off and spread out through the whole universe, helping everyone, no matter how different or how far. And their spaceships were golden and emblazoned with the image of the squid who spoke to them from beyond the stars. Thank you. Hey, Leonard. All right, I, th I think I have to stop there because my arm fell asleep. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. Does any anyone have any questions? Yes. I forgot your name. What? Talk about quotation marks. Oh, because I don't use quotation marks. Um, yeah, I don't know. People always ask about that, and I don't really have any excuse. I, I mean, um, when I started writing stories, I was just like spinning out ideas because I thought I was going to write a screenplay. And I was just spinning out as many story ideas as I could. So I was just writing them down. And when you write screenplays, you don't use quotation marks. Um, and then when I started to like them the way they were and started to think that they were fine just as they were as little stories, I just didn't really feel like putting in quotation marks. I noticed that when I read um, fiction, I, my eye just naturally goes to dialogue. It's like the, the dialogue pops forward off the page because it's in quotation marks. And sometimes when I feel lazy, I just read the dialogue. You know, it's like an easy way to, to read fast. Don't tell anyone I told you I do this. Um, and I didn't want people to do that. You know, I wanted people to hear the whole 
story as it was sort of read out loud, so I didn't use quotation marks. But I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Although one time I, I had a story published and they put quotation marks in, and I got really mad. <laughs> I don't know. Um, any, anyway, any other questions? Somebody have a question? Yes. Is the process of choosing animals, is that like sort of like a, like it just comes to you or tell me about, you know, how the squid, was, was it, did it start as squid or was it initially, you know, uh, No, it was a squid. Um, yeah, I don't know, all the stories, the way that I write stories, because um, if I have any idea what I'm going to do, then everything becomes homework and I don't do it. Um, so the way I do everything is I have to find out ways to like trick myself into writing without realizing that I'm doing it or thinking too much about it. So the way I write everything is to make sure I have no ideas and no plan and just to sit down and like whatever the first image is that pops into my head, that's what I'm writing a story about. So uh, a squid came and that, I don't know how he fell in love with this. I don't. I just know a squid came, and that's that's about it. I did write a story about an octopus in the last book. Um, I really like the cephalopods. How do you say that word? So I guess there's a cuttlefish story coming somewhere. I don't. Know. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. When you start with the squid, do you commit only to the to following the squid as the character, or do you commit to the sun as like a plot point? When you start out, you know the squid is getting to the sun. But how do you? you know? the, whole, the only thing that I like commit to hard is the first sentence. The first sentence is like I look at it as like the assignment. I can't. I can change anything after that first sentence, but the first sentence is inviolable. Is that a word? Inviolable. Inviolable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I imagine sometimes like. First sentence, and then more sentences drop in. And for me, that sometimes happens, and it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, no, that's sure. I have many stories where I've written like tens, twenties, thirties drafts of them, and then at the end, that all gets thrown away, and I'm back to the first sentence. It's 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 not the best way to work, maybe, but that's how I do it. Yeah. Somebody else had a question. Yeah. How many first sentences do you have? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, for a long time, I tried to write a story a day, because um, because Ray Bradbury said that that he did that, and I was like, okay, that's what I'm doing. Um, and I did that for a couple years, so I have like, hey Jack, I have like probably at least 700 just from those first couple years. I don't know, I don't count, um, but there's a lot. Yeah, yeah, Peter. Does the way uh, story looks on the page, the words, the layout, uh, matter to Um, yeah, I write in very short paragraphs with a lot of indentations and a lot of space breaks. I don't know why that matters or what it does, but, um, it makes me nervous when I look at a page and it's just a giant block of text. Um, yeah. Yeah, Diane. Try the stories in different environments, meaning like a sound environment, and set up different modules. You mean when I'm writing them? 
Am I always right to be read out loud? You know, I'm always listening to it in my head, and a lot of the time, as I'm writing it, I'm reciting it out loud in my house over and over again. And then once they're written, I read them out loud to anyone who will listen. Um, and then, and then I, I read them in public, you know, and pay attention to how I feel. You know, when I hit those moments where I cringe, then I know there's something wrong. Everything is just my stomach. At any point where my stomach starts to get upset, I know that that needs work. What's that? I don't imagine you at all. I, it's just, <laughs> I mean, I just am sort of listening to it as though it's read to me. You know? Yeah. What kind of card is Death It's like a, is it a Duesenberg? Is that, does, does anyone know cars? <laughs> it was really a long, like, stretch convertibles from like 1920 the ones that have like the I'm really good at cars you know that <laughs> what's that maybe <laughs> yeah there was a question yeah We didn't have a TV, and all I did was read, and we, I just read Aesop's fables and children's stories from the Bible. I don't know why we had a children's stories from the Bible book, because my family is a bunch of atheists. Um, and then pretty soon after that, I became obsessed with the Norse myths, just reading stories about Loki and Thor all the time. And then I got really into Beowulf. And then, uh, and then Dungeons and Dragons entered the equation. So yeah, I read a lot, a lot of myths growing up. People always think of these as fairy tales, but I didn't really read a whole lot of fairy tales. It was mostly the Norse myths and the Greek myths, just any kind of myths. Yeah. Um, but I don't really think about that. That just sort of comes out. Gods, demigods, and heroes, D and D. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's the Lovecraft stuff, and that's collectible. And the Elric stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah, and the Elric stuff, too, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. You've been critically compared to Beckett. How do you feel about that? Um, that's insane. I mean, I love Beckett. He was, for a long time, my favorite writer. And Waiting for Godot was probably... I mean, it's easily my favorite play. It was a long time my favorite thing in general. My biggest regret in life is that when I was in high school, they put on Waiting for Godot on Broadway with Robin Williams and Steve Martin. And my mom came into my room. I remember this so clearly. She came into my room and said, Ben, it's your birthday. Would you like to go see Waiting for Godot with Robin Williams and Steve Martin? And I was like, what's, what's Waiting for Godot? And she was like, ah. <laughs> She was like, it's a, it's a famous play. And I was like, what is, what's it about? And she was like, it's about, it's hard to explain. And I was like, it's like, no, I don't want to do that. And that's, that's like the worst thing that's ever happened to me. So, I, yeah, I don't, I would love to be compared to Beckett, but, but that's, that's a tough one to swallow. Yeah.
Um, yeah. Um, Philip K. Dick is my favorite writer, by far. Uh, he's wrote, written probably 40-something novels, and I've read every single one of them. Every now and then they find another one that was, like, buried out back under, like, a, a pot or something. And I, and I read that, too. Um, I really love Richard Brodigan. He, Richard Brodigan was the writer who, when I was growing up, you know, I just read books, and I was like, these are stories. They're about these people. Um, the Richard Brodigan was the first time I ever read a book, and I was like, oh, there's a writer. You know, I was like, oh, there's someone here who's, like, sitting in my house next to me who's telling me the story, and this is, like, him. This is, like, his whole persona, his mind. That was, I don't know why that never occurred to me before, but, um, yeah, let's see, Richard Brodigan. I really love Patricia Highsmith. Iris Murdoch is my favorite novelist. Um, I love Henry James, short stories. Uh, my favorite living writer is Scott McClanahan. They have this book, his new book, The Sarah Book. Just came out, you should all buy The Sarah Book and everything by Scott McClanahan. He's a genius. Um, that's all I can think of. Who's your favorite poet? I like Tennyson. That's probably not the coolest thing to say, but I love Tennyson. Yeah. Yeah, Pete. Um, I've been watching Ray Bradbury Theater, that old TV show. Is there going to be a Ken Lurie Theater? <laughs> That's my question. I don't know, you know. Um, That's your pitch. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a convincing pitch or that would probably exist right now. I always think of it you know, when I'm writing the stories, I see them as cartoons. I see them as little, like if The Twilight Zone was done as like Warner Brothers cartoons. As these like five or ten minute long, like kind of freaky cartoons. Um, but I don't know who to say that to to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Josh. Um, do you ever feel insecure about your writing or... Later, no. <laughs> Usually I forget it when it's over, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, of course, I doubt everything. Um, and I hate reading over my stories, you know. It's like everything is wrong all the time. can never get everything right. Um, I mean, I... I like my stories. I feel like in like two or three hundred years, I will be good enough to pull them off properly, you know? Um, yeah. Does, does that answer that question? <laughs> uh, anything else? Yeah. Do I, do I want to? What did you say? I don't know. I, um... Can say, you know, I uh, my rule has always been that I just write what comes out, and so far, it's short stories. Every now and then, I start I'm writing, and something comes out, and I'm like, oh, oh, I think this might be a novel, and then it ends like four sentences later, and I'm like, it's a, it's a really short novel. I don't know, you know, I. I always, when I, I always thought that someday I would write a novel, you know. 
um, never once in my life occurred to me that I would write short stories. Uh, it's a very strange thing that has happened. I can't really account for it. Um, once I started writing short stories, it has become very hard for me to read novels. I tend to get really anxious. After like five or six pages, I'm like, what? We have to read 300 more pages? Like, I get it. Um, but I hear that they pay you more for novels, so I'm open to it. <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah, I'm going to sign some books now. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.